This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. This podcast is Shareable. I'm your host, Jeff Gibbard, commonly known as the world's most handsome strategist and professional speaker. I'm also a superhero. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single Shareable episode. And that's it. That's the intro. Short and sweet. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to Shareable. Today, my guest is Jeff Harry, who combines positive psychology and play to help teams and organizations create psychologically safe workplaces and assist individuals in addressing their biggest challenges through embracing a play-oriented approach to work. I am so excited about today. We've been trying to make this happen for a really long time. Uh, let me finish the intro, though, before we we go into our... It, it's just, this, Today is going to be one of those awesome, just bantery kind of awesome episodes. So uh, for his work, Jeff was selected by Bamboo HR and Engagedly as one of the top 100 HR influencers of 2020 and has been featured in the New York Times, Mashable, Upworthy, and Shondaland. Jeff has worked with Google, Microsoft, Southwest Air, Adobe, the NFL, Amazon, and Facebook helping their staff to infuse more play into the day-to-day. Yo, this guy is legit. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Jeff, welcome to Shareable. It's been a long time in the making. Let's play. Let's go. I'm ready. Let's do this. Dude, so many things to cover. So many things. So many okay. things. Let's do it. So, so, so play has been very much on my mind. Yeah. One, because I'm a giant child and yeah. I love superhero stuff and having fun and talking about geek stuff. So that's one yes. thing. But so as me, is, why don't you just describe me? Yes. Exactly. Uh, second thing is I routinely see your content come up in my LinkedIn. And I love the fact that I get to go on LinkedIn now and I actually get to laugh on LinkedIn. And like professionally appropriate laugh, like relevant and like, it's just great. And then third thing is I just finished um, reading Brene Brown's The Power of Vulnerability. Great book. If you haven't read it, it's great. Mm -hmm. But in it, she talks about play. There's a whole chapter on play Mm -hmm. and she defines it as time spent without purpose that you don't want to end and that you can lose yourself without any worry of external judgment. That's her definition of it. So let's talk about play today and why it's so important. So to start with. Uh, what do leaders need to know about play? Why is this an important conversation? Why is it important now? Like, why play, dude? Why? Because, you know, you know the thing, play. This is work. We, we don't yeah. play. Why so, play? So I always answer that question to company leaders with Stephen Johnson's quote, the future is where people are having the most fun. Hmm. So if your company is one of those antiquated places where fun is like the the soul is being sucked from you like gen z is is pushing a new labor movement and people are following it and if your company is not bringing a certain level of fun or certain level of play allowing your staff to be in flow allowing your staff to actually show up more as the their full self right not just say it you're done you're just going to be obsolete you might still be around but you're not going to be relevant. Like if you think of all the companies that thrived during 2020, it was all the companies that were playing, that were trying stuff out, that were testing stuff out. TikTok, Clubhouse, Disney Plus, like they were just Netflix. They were just throwing things out on the wall, but they're willing to experiment, right? And a lot of people don't realize this, but like I I give the example of Google's 20% program, which I don't even know if they still have anymore. But at one point they gave their staff 20% of their time devoted to whatever they wanted to do. That's a fifth of their time every month where they could pursue anything that is interest of them as long as it 
uh, benefited Google and what came from the Google 20% program, Google Meet, Google Maps, Gmail, like so many of the things that, that Google is now built on is because they allowed their staff to come from a place of curiosity. And there's so many other examples of that, of like where play is the reason why a company was able to innovate and thrive. And if you're venturing into this uncertainty and you're not willing to play and you're trying to go back to normal, oh, I'm sorry, you're done, you're done. It, it's probably a little early to ask this question, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's yeah. my podcast and I take bold actions. So I'm a thorough believer in play. The data, obviously, to, to kind of the point you just made, supports the idea of play mm -hmm. as sort of a, a central trait of innovation. I think we all want to have more fun at work. Like, I don't think anybody wants to go in and do this thing that is just arduous and sucks the soul out of them. Okay, so we've we've now got several data points lined up here. We've got, we want to have more fun at work. Uh, play actually leads to more innovation. Um, and what was the third one I just said? Whatever it was, point is, all of, the, all of the points point to the fact that this is important. So why the hell is it still... Like you're, it, this isn't a, a nationwide, workwide conversation that we're having. Like you're still pushing this boulder up the yeah. hill to get people to pay attention that this is important. But similar to like diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, yep. that there's loads of data to support why that is the better way to approach your business. We're still fighting these fights. Why is it that play is not the dominant conversation about how we should be approaching our work? Why? Because it's because it's hard. Because it's, it's extremely difficult. Did you say play because, is hard? Yeah, it is. Because for you to play, you actually have to be real. And a lot of the reason why most places, remember, 80, this is 2018, when the, uh, 2019, when Gallup did this study. 85% of people are disengaged at work. This was before the pandemic. Pre-pandemic, it was like, it was its own issue, right? So, you know, I hate forced fun. Like, I hate, like, forcing people to do team building events when they don't like each other. If Kathy doesn't like Chad and you put them in escape from the room and they get out of the room, they're not better. <laughs> they still hate each other because, like, you have to first create a psychologically safe workspace in order to play. Right. You have to like help people navigate difficult conversations. You have to address the toxicity at work. You have to, what would I say, psychological safety is defined by the worst behavior tolerated. That's your culture. What's the worst behavior tolerated? Good quote. So a lot of times we're not even there yet. Companies are not even ready to play because they haven't even had certain conversations. They can't even talk about what happened during the pandemic. You know, one of the like, you know, suggestions I'm giving to a lot of companies right now is like, Let's analyze what went on during the pandemic. Did you build trust with your staff or did you lose trust with your staff, right? Do, why are you forcing them back to, to come to back into the office? Is that for your own like power dynamics or is it really to help the culture or you just have no real reason to do it? Like what's the level of trust? You know, I, I was talking about this the other day, right? Like this was so frustrating. So perfect example, American Airlines last Ugh. year, Got yeah, I know horrible airline. They got five point eight billion dollars in bailout money. This is the money to pay your staff so they stay on salary. They got that money and then they laid off nineteen thousand people right after they got the money. Now they just came back in the news and they were like, "Yeah, we have to cut a hundred flights during the summer." And they're like, "Why?" And they're like, "Oh, well, turbulence and also we have this labor shortage, you know, because people are lazy, right?" 
No, it was because you let go so many people. And now you want like sympathy for the fact that you let off like all these flight attendants, all these pilots. And then when you finally came back to them, you were like, hey, can you come back? And they're like, no, I found another job because you just tossed me away and you didn't use the money that you had for me. You did it to like buy stock back so you could give money to your investors and to yourself, you know? So it's just like, there's so many companies that are not building trust with their employees. And then they hear the word play and they're like, well, I mean, that just seems like extra work. When frankly, when your staff is actually in flow and in play, they're 500% more productive. Turnover is less, productivity is higher. Like all these things are beneficial, but you have to do all of this work to build a safe space to do that. And a lot of leaders right now aren't ready to do that. They're just not. It sounds like a compounding problem because it's not just like, if you look at it as like a single organization, it could sound like, well, that's an addressable problem, right? Like we right. can go in there, enough consultants, enough work, enough, you know, trust and, and hard conversations. But it sounds like it's actually nested inside of the larger, com- your American Airlines example actually gives a really, really salient look at that, which is like, we have a cultural problem that creates fear and scarcity that creates difficulty to- yep give into play like you don't have the you're to your point like you can't play in an unsafe environment you to play you have to be able to like let go it's like why the sandbox has like edges to it right right so how i guess like how do you there's so many oh my god the problem with talking with someone like you is that like i have like a thousand things (laughs) i need to ask you about but like part of it is like i want to know like how did you how did you get into this and are trying to approach something that is like such a massive problem if we're looking at it in terms of like the cultural uh, issues that need to be adjusted outside of just the individual companies that you may work with. Like, how can we, how are you thinking about like the cultural, the big picture cultural thing that we need to address to create play as something that can happen at more than just like the individual companies you may be able to touch or the people who do work like you are able to touch. Yeah. So I don't know if I phrased that question well, but let me see if I can try to tackle it. Right. So, you know, the quick version of my stories, I wrote toy companies when I was in third grade, like, because I saw the movie big, he got to play with toys for a living. I was like, Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. That's what I'm doing for the rest of my life. I started writing toy companies right after I saw Tom Hanks dance on that piano. I was like, it's done son. You know? So then I got in the toy industry and then I saw how toxic it was. Right. And I don't know if you've ever gotten exactly what you've always wanted and then been so disappointed when you get there, but like, that's what happened stuck in this cubicle. And I'm like, why is it carpeted? Like the only place they also pad walls are in like, institutions okay yeah so like it's already set up in such a way so then when i left new york came to the bay area bumped into an organization that was teaching kids engineering with lego and um you know and they were playing for a living and it was only seven people at the time i was like oh dude i'm gonna make this thing a thing and we were lucky enough to grow it into like the largest lego inspired stem organization in the country and the only reason i tell that story was we did it all by playing right so we did it where like we didn't have a business plan. We picked cities we thought were fun. We picked people that we thought were fun. And I tell that story when now I'm invited into corporations because I did team building events for 10 years for all these companies that you listed earlier. And I noticed even that the top companies, they had not addressed toxic situations. They had not addressed navigating difficult conversations. These are the best companies in the world. So I know this is a clear issue that we're going to be dealing with for 
at least the next couple decades, if not longer. And really what we have to decide as a, as a culture, as the American US culture, is which direction do we want to go? Do we want to go to in the direction of Amazon with their warehouses where like they have 150% turnover? How do you have that? That means people quit within days of being there. My nephew right now works for an Amazon warehouse. He works the night shift. He's like, this is the worst. There's so many videos that come out that show like, it's almost like slave labor. They're treating people like robots. That's one direction. That's one extreme, right? The other extreme is the Zappos way, right? It's the Tony Shea way. It's the Dan Price way of like, 70,000, he, you know, he was giving minimum wage for him there was $70,000 a year. Not every company can do that, but you have to step up. And, and I was just watching this because like, I hate how like we deify the, you know, in, innovators of the past, like Rockefeller and like Henry yeah. Ford and all those, they have like his, but I was watching this history channel one on, on Henry Ford. What was interesting was, so where does the eight hour workday come from? It comes from this guy named Robert Owen, Right invented in 1817, no one implemented it for over like a hundred years. Then uh, Henry Ford implements it in 1925. And why does he do it? Because he has to. 1925, this is right after the pandemic, right? People were working 11 to 16 hours. One in 10 people were dying in factories, one in 10. So this guy goes, hey, we're doing an eight hour workday and then I'm doubling everyone's salary. And people, the whole industries were like, I can't believe this. this is ridiculous. And he didn't do it because like he's a good guy. He did it because he knew that's where the market is going. Fast forward now, this is what companies have to be thinking about now. In the long run, what do I need to do in order to come from a shared place of humanity, a shared place of emotional intelligence, right? A shared place of empathy. Because if I don't, people will leave my company. I will become the next blockbuster video. Like that's just the direction we're going. And what are some of the solutions? Some of the solutions are let people work wherever they want to work. Give them, consider possibly doing a four-day work week. Oh my goodness. Yes. Actually, you're more productive in a four-day work week. It's Microsoft just did the study. There's so many other companies that have also done the study. Like start exploring different ways of working because this whole idea of like, you need to sit next to me for eight hours is something from the 1950s. And we're past that. I think the word play is part of what people might get stuck on. Because I've noticed that in, uh, in, in our culture of work, you almost have to frame things that are important in, in, yep. like, in terms of productivity or in terms yep. of like, you have to talk about it, like not play, innovation. Right? Yes, corporate so speak, corporate yeah, jargon. Exactly. So um, it, all of what you're saying makes perfect sense. And I think there's still just the underlying conf confronting issue of fear that's there of doing something that hasn't been tried, tested and true of the last hundred years of treating people like dirt. And we're seeing more of these experiences to your point about the four day work week. I think it was also, it was either Iceland or Finland yep. just did the test. And they also showed that it was like remarkably more yep. productive. Well, so but what I say to people all the time is just like, I don't talk about play. I talk about flow, right? I talk about that 500% productivity. I talk about lower turnover. Yeah. I talk about addressing your issues. So most of the time I'm focused on pain points, but then I also share 
there's so many examples, right? Like I'll give you an example of, of one that, uh, a story that I love, right? This is from the Wright brothers, right? A lot of, po- a lot of people don't realize the Wright brothers, while they were making their freaking flying machine in their bike mechanic shop, while their neighbors were laughing at them, there was another group funded by Chrysler and the US government that got a million dollars to also invent a flying machine. They had multiple PhDs on staff, multiple scientists, a million dollars, which now would represent, I don't even know, something around like a hundred billion dollars. Like that's the level of it, you know, of money they had in their pocket. So much pressure on them to produce this flying machine before these two random dudes out in like Ohio, right? Who won? The freaking bike mechanics. Why? Because they were doing it for fun. They weren't even doing it for the result. They were doing it just because they loved the process of it. I mean, it was cool, but they loved the iteration process. And as soon as they invented it, the other group just stopped. They didn't want to innovate on it. They could have. They could have done all these other cool things with it, but they didn't. So when you're coming from a place of curiosity, awe, and play, you actually are then becoming the innovators, the ones that actually can change the world. We, you know, leaders always talk about innovation, but then they make it such an unsafe place for people to take risks. The only way in which your company is going to survive in this post-pandemic world is to live in a place of uncertainty and to take risks. What is that world? It's a world of play. That's what it is. So I think the innovation case makes sense. R&D, technology even maybe like coding, building things like that. What about accountants? What about people in finance? What about, because I think, again, when you come to play and you come to innovation and you come to creativity, there's so many, like the, the first industry that would jump to mind for me would be like finance, right? Like finance, right. there's no place for play. There's no place for innovation in, you know, outside of like a way of like squeezing a bit more productivity or predicting market trends or something like that. It would seem to me that like one of the big areas of resistance here are a lot of traditional industries in which deviation from the norm isn't necessarily something that, um, people are going to more, like, I think companies like Google and Amazon and Microsoft, like, it seems like they'd be more willing to do it. Right. They, right. But like, so, so how does, how does this whole world uh, work when we're talking about industries that may be more resistant? How well, do you approach that? How do you make the case to them that this is still important? Yeah. I was talking to a construction company not that long ago on a podcast and it was just like, it's more about how are you thinking about issues, right? How are you actually addressing your issue? You don't think there's like new innovative ways in which we can do finance. What happened in 2008? You know, that was because people were not innovating. That's because they like got themselves into trouble. We have to be really, I mean, if I was a finance person right now, I would be really thinking about like, what companies are going to be around? What companies are actually trying to take risks? Because I need to invest in those specific companies, right? If you're in sales or HR, totally different way in which to approach stuff. So much is going to change in the post-pandemic world that every industry will need to at least get comfortable with uncertainty. And the problem with so many industries is they're trying to constantly control everything and they need to realize they can't, right? They just can't. So now it's just like, all right, I would ask finance right now, what is something you learned during the pandemic that you're going to take with you going forward? You know, what are the good things about finance that you can actually do that you learned during the pandemic? But even something as simple as this, and this is for any company, 
what is what were the good meetings you had during the pandemic and what were the bad ones? What are the ones that from the pre-pandemic world you don't want to have anymore? There's so much wasted time. How many reports, talk about whether it's finance or sales, and how many reports do we make basically proving that we're doing work that we're doing, right? Like again, just wasteful time, man. Eight hours, why are we devoting? Like, like oh, what was it? Um, a study just recently found that people cannot focus for more than I believe 3.81 hours in a given day, like mm -hmm. deep work, right? Maybe four hours of deep work. So if you knew that about your staff, what work would you want them to focus on? I tell this to leaders all the time. I'm like, look, you want your staff to potentially stay? Why don't you ask them what's the work that makes them come most alive? What's the work where if they weren't getting paid, they'd still do that work? What's the work that they love to do out of everything else? Oh, they love they love doing sales. They love talking to people. You know, they love to, what percentage of time do they currently do that work? They only do it 20% of the time. How can you increase it from 20 to 30%? We're talking about a couple hours a week, right? You do that not only are then you showing that you're investing in them, right? But then you get more out of them and they appreciate you more because they know that you care about them as a human being and not just as some cog that you're trying to squeeze as much productivity out of. We need to stop looking at people as objects in this economy and start looking at them as humans again. I, it's one of the first questions I ask anyone when I'm working with them is like, what is the work that you absolutely love to do? You would do no matter what, you just enjoy the hell out of it. And what's the stuff that you hate? It's like nails on a chalkboard and it feels awful. I can't promise I'm going to only give you work you love right. and keep you away from work you hate, but it's helpful for me to know so I can try to direct as many things that are that are fitting into your sweet spot as possible. Uh, and it also fits into a question about like, how do you like to be coached? Um, yep. You know, what sort of ways do you like to learn all that sort of stuff? So, so, so we've made the, I feel like you've made a really good case for why it matters in non-traditional industries and traditional industries, what it exactly means to play at work, um, or at least some of the criteria. So I want to get a little bit specific about kind of steps that companies, let, let's imagine somebody right now is listening yep. and buys into this idea. They're like, yep. okay, Jeff's, you guys have made a really good case for playing at work and, and the ways in which that can be interpreted as innovation and productivity and flow state and happier employees and engagement, and all these great things. What do I do next? So how would you go about telling leaders of companies to start thinking about integrating play in a structured way, maybe over the course of next year, we want to turn ourselves from a boring yep. fucking organization into a play-based organization. It's not going to happen overnight. What are some of the kind of the key milestones, things to think about, steps to take? So, so I would say you first have to build the playground. And what I mean by that is you have to build the psychologically safe space, right? Mm -hmm. So you first need to start having conversations with staff of like, how did we do during the pandemic? Did I build trust with you or did I lose trust? And if I lost trust, what do I need to do to gain that trust back, right? So th that is the initial conversations that have to happen. Then if you've built that, then you start asking, what's the work that makes me come most alive? And you start to help them do more of that work. After you do that, then you identify what are their love languages of work at work right Ooh, do you I know love your that. staff's love languages post right? about that that's great right like yeah. like let's talk about it oh they love gifts oh you mean they love bonuses do you know you can take that bonus at the end of the year and spread it out throughout the entire year same amount of money sometimes even less but if you're giving it each time they do something well higher productivity because they're getting recognized oh yeah. do they love acts of service 
let them go home early on a Friday, cover their work for a little bit. You know, you know, something's going on with their family. Oh, do they love quality time? Set a certain period of time every two weeks to like have lunch with them. I know a guy that during the entire pandemic with his team just had lunch. That was their meeting. They just hung out and had lunch and the talk about whatever they wanted to talk about. So many people stayed because of that freaking lunch, man. You know, and then the other one is um, uh, words of affirmation. Like, do you recognize your staff, but not only praise them within the department, but praise them outside the department. So if they ever want to transfer, you're like, yo, I got you. So that you're not there trying to limit their growth. You know, I once had a guy who left us to take on his dream job, but because that was not a psychologically safe space and we'd given him so many words of affirmation, he came back, he came back to our organization. So we have to first create the safe space. And then after you've done that work, then the, the idea of play is then giving your staff freedom to solve problems in different ways and giving them the, the, the freedom also to fail. And that's a part that's huge because if you're constantly focused on quarterly results, you're going to miss out on the innovation. But if you give your staff like, Hey, we've always done marketing this way. Hey, we've always like broken down the numbers or, you know, broken down our finances in this way. If you have a new way of doing it, I want you to bring it to the table and we're going to try it out for X period of time, just a small experiment. And we'll just see what happens. And if you give them the freedom to fail, they will perform so much better for you than if you are constantly on them to produce certain results. So you and me are like very um, outgoing, nerdy. We like geeky stuff. We like talking about comic book movies before we even got on. We were just, you know, talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe and like we could joke and, and laugh at things all day. That's a, ter- that's a type of personality. Right. right there. I have some friends who are more introverted. I mm-hmm. have friends who are very task-oriented. I have friends who view work in a different way that I do. I want to express my purpose and passion through my work. Some right. people want to go to work, do their job, and go home. Mm-hmm. I'm picturing in my head this sort of formal approach to play, and one of two things happening. There's going to be people who are looking to get play right. They, they have like a, what are yep. the boxes I need to check to do play perfectly and get my bonus? I want to be, I want to be the good employee that plays right. So that's the first one. And the second one are the people who don't buy into the idea of the play at work. Yeah. And I'm wondering how those two different types of personalities in an organization help or hinder or can be worked with in this idea of moving your organization to more of a flow state, more innovation, more play, more psychological safety. How do those types of people, um, tend to help or hinder? Yeah, so let me first define this part. So I see play as the opposite of perfection. Perfection is rooted in ego, shame, uh, fear of failure, focus solely on results, trying to be right all the time, right? Play is rooted in curiosity, awe, you know, wonder, embracing failure. I had a a former colleague who worked on the Mars rover. Her main job when she was working on the Mars rover to have it fail 25,000 different ways before they sent it to Mars. Why? Because 
if it failed all these times on Earth and they were able to fix it, when it went to Mars, they would be able to figure it out there. So that's one thing, right? Just of like embracing it because frankly, in the post-pandemic world, you're gonna have to navigate so many different failures and be able to be resilient, right? So as an organization, there's that. But then addressing people that may not be, may not wanna play, right? Don't force them. Like, remember the playground when you were a kid. Kids could do whatever they want. They could play or they could sit on the sidelines. They could do whatever they want. Some people are going to join. Some people are not. Don't force. You can't force innovation. You basically offer it. And then anyone that wants to walk through the door can. And others might just sit on the sidelines and just be like, well, I'm just going to do what I've always done. And then you'd be surprised how much they're impacted by just the energy around them. Right. Like there was a study recently done, may a few years done by Marriott, where they were like, you know, we're not connecting with and greeting enough people. So if anyone's within five feet of you, always greet them, always say hello. Right. And they implemented that same thing at like this toxic um, hospital where within five feet, say hello, within 10 feet, you know, just acknowledge their presence. People that like hated it, all the introverts started doing it within six months still. So like you can still adopt it. You can still get the energy. You don't all, not everyone has to all be the same way. Everyone plays in different ways, right? You know, there's someone who's like an introvert that plays and loves numbers. Sweet, dude. How can I, how can I delegate more of my work that is like, you know, so much fixated on, you know, crunching numbers so I can do more of like the work with, um, with, uh, with clients and allow you to do the thing that makes you come most alive. So this is where the leader is there to help and move around the work to help people do, you know, their zone of genius, as Gay Hendricks says, right? Not just their zone of excellence, but their zone of genius. And the more we can actually do that, and the more you're not forcing people to do fun, but being like, what is your type of way in which you love to play? Or what is your type of way in which you love to work? Let me just help you do more of that that will create a safer space for people to share and connect. Okay. I totally dig that. I totally dig that. Um, you talked a little bit about flow state and I just wanted to, to quick dip in. Cause I, I know probably most people listening have experienced flow state, Yeah, but I've seen you talk about in places like kind of really at, at like what, what is actually happening in Sure. Yeah. So, Can you talk so, a little bit about that, help people better understand like what yeah, exactly so typ- is going on? Typically your, your brain is in a beta state, right? And when it goes into a flow state, it goes through something called transient hypofrontality, right? Um, transient is temporary. Hypo is like the, you know, uh, like hypo means actually under activity. And then frontality is talking about the prefrontal cortex. So what actually happens is your brain, a part of your brain shuts down. And that part of your brain that shuts down is your inner critic. It's that mean voice. So if you think of like players that are playing sports, they can't hear their inner critic because they're making so many decisions at a given time and their inner critic can't show up. So, so your brain is under activity. This is why time is distorted when you're in a flow state. And what actually happens is, so your inner critic shuts down or dissipates. You get this shot of dopamine. You become highly curious. And then all of a sudden you start to see all of these options in front of you, you know, Usually, you know, in a beta state is your brain is fixated on one result and expectations of the thief of joy, right? But 
in this uncertain state that we're going into in the post-pandemic world, it's really important to see all these options in front of you. And an example of that is when you travel and you're willing to say yes and to everything. Yes, I'll have another mimosa. Yes, I'll hop on this moped. Yes, I'll go to this deserted island. How did I appear like on this, you know, island under the moonlight dancing and then I meet the love of my life? Because you're saying yes to stuff because you're open to all the possibilities in front of you. And that is when you're in flow, everything slows down. You start seeing the options and you're like, man, this is great. I love this state. And the way in which we can, I'll go into how you can get in that state in a moment, but that's what's actually happening in your brain. That's amazing. I had actually no idea that's how I've experienced flow, but I've never actually looked into it. And I knew, I knew you would be able to talk about that. I would imagine that it is difficult to get into a state of flow because it's silencing that inner critic. If you are in an environment where you feel that there you're surrounded by criticism or you're surrounded by a lack of psychological safety, which makes you, I want to double back to a question about this with the, with the kind of the, 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 the bigger, more global culture thing, which is that in today's business environment and, and having run my own small business, and I know that you've, you've run business, you know that there are like hard decisions you sometimes have to make, mm-hmm. right? Like sometimes team members have to go, sometimes mm-hmm. you don't have the revenue coming in. There's all these things that are actually like real life threats, kind of like, you know, being in the jungle and like, you know, attacked by a lion. Um, those sorts of things can undermine psychological safety, even mm-hmm. in the most playful and, and like really thoughtful and, um, uh, organizations. So how, how do you maintain kind of play resilience in an uncertain world? Because as we kind of have talked about multiple times right here, fear, scarcity, uncertainty, those yep. sorts of things can undermine the psychological safety you need to play. How do you deal with those variables? If I was telling this to a company leader, I'd be like, you apologize. like you apologize dude like you own it you own it like this is the problem with a lot of leaders they don't own it they try to pretend there were so many clients i talked to during the pandemic where they were experienced where their leaders were not telling them about the finances that were going on that were not telling them about the furloughs or what was going on with a furlough they're not telling them about what potential layoffs so there are all these rumors and instead of just being transparent and being like yo i don't know what's happening even if you were like a a middle man management leader, like, I don't know exactly what's happening. I will let you know as much as I can whenever I can tell you, right? I got your back. That's what that's what um, employees wanted to hear. But instead, there were a lot of leaders that didn't say anything. And then they would be like, hey, you know, we're all in it together. And then they were looking for other jobs while they were doing it. So like your actions speak more than your words. So you have to be like, you first, again, have to talk to your staff and be like, Do my actions represent like my values? And if they don't, then I need to change that. And then I need to own that. And I need to apologize for that. I need to build that trust back or build that trust to begin with. Because like, there's so many companies that when you get onboarded, they tell you about their values and then they don't do any of those things, you know? So you have to, again, have hard conversations of like, are the values that this company talk about, do we actually live them? Oh, we don't. What do you need to see in order for us to actually live them? Okay, great. I'll see if we do these. And then anytime an employee complains or mentions something, don't let it go into this black hole that you never address ever again, which many companies do. And instead take some action, man. Like this is not that hard. Like Dan Price, who runs Gravity Payments was like, 
Oh, I did a survey and found out how much of our staff, what our staff wanted to do. 60% wanted to continue to work at home. 30% wanted a hybrid. Another 10% wanted to do whatever they wanted. So you know what we did? We just let them do whatever they wanted. It's not that hard. It's not that hard. Why are we making it so difficult? Why are we like making it so complicated? Like you can do this. You can figure this out. Yeah, I guess like that's just the big, like this entire conversation has really just at, at like illuminated for me that the simple answers really are oftentimes the right answer. Like, just be honest, just be transparent, create an environment where people feel psychologically safe so that they can do their best work, innovate and have fun and not hate their life so that they stay and maybe come back after they go home. After. Like, it all just seems so straightforward and obvious. Um, and like the work from home thing, that's another one that like, um, we've, we've talked a lot about the pandemic. I'm gonna ask you a question about that in a second, but like the, the work from home thing and the, the coming back into the office and all that, I simply cannot understand any of the mindsets that aren't like we've proven that it can, we can do it for like a year and a half. Like, why are you trying to say that we need to about face and everybody needs to come back in because like they literally carried you as a company for a year and a half working remotely. And now you're telling them what they have to do. And they had carried you while they were bait, while they were, teaching their kids while their kids were climbing all yeah. over them. They were dealing with the pandemic. Some people had experienced other, you know, their, their loved ones dying. Yeah. And, and I was speaking to a client just the other day that was like, we were more profitable during the pandemic. We had our best year ever. You know what their solution is to force us to come back to the office. Like what yeah. is happening, man? Also you think about office costs. Like I know a lot of companies exactly. that are like sitting there on these like five-year leases, 10-year leases. And a lot of them are like, I got to get out of this. Like this is not right. Everyone can work from home. It's so much cheaper and everyone's happier. And, and this is another thing I heard somebody say that what the pandemic taught us is that we used to have to try and fit our life around our work. And now we have to fit our work around our life. And it's such a better thing to be able to like, say it's Wednesday morning. I have to go and run an errand. I'll be back, but I'm home anyway. I'll be working late. Like whatever. It's like treat people like adults and grownups. Right. People actually do more work when they're working from home anyway. And what companies that I'm making this, this email or letter that I'm sending to a lot of CEOs now, you know, where basically it's like the canary in the coal mine message is, you know, this is the great resignation. This is going to be the largest movement of labor out of the corporate world since the great depression. That's what I believe. That's what the data is saying. Right. And it's on you in the next three to six months to make the, the decisions you make in the next three to six months are going to determine the success of your organization for the next decade. So you have to really be thinking what is in the best interest of the company and my, and specifically my employees now, you know, and not be thinking about just my investors or my quarterly earnings, but be thinking about my staff. Why, what do I need to do to bring my staff back that makes them want to actually stay? Because there's so many other jobs they can go to. There's so many other options and they don't need to be treated the way they used to be treated. And if your argument, I was just, I just made a video about this. If your argument is that oh, you need to come back to the office for culture or you need to come back to the office because I need to monitor you, right? That micromanager has just proven that their job is not necessary. There are so many BS jobs out there right now, like middle management jobs that their whole job was micromanaging and then it's proven that they're not necessary anymore. 
those those positions need to be removed. That's what leaders need to be looking at right now and be like, who is not helping the organization? Who is that toxic person that is getting all these people to quit? Why am I keeping these people that, you know, these middle managers that are pretending they're doing work over the people that are really doing the work that are actually bringing in the revenue? These are the questions that we need to be asking as leaders. So you answered my question, I think, which is that, do you believe, because you've mentioned the pandemic a lot uh, over the course of this conversation, do you believe that the pandemic will be sort of a watershed moment that fundamentally changes things in the, the nature of how work happens? Or do you think that we'll see, you know, corporate interests and, and the powers that be that have existed to kind of claw back to try and get things back to the way that they were? My assumption is you would say that it's going to be, it's going to be different. Uh, it's going to be different, but there's going to be a fight. There's going to be a cultural fight because you're already seeing it now where there's so much gaslighting and so many companies trying to shame employees into coming back. Like an article just came out in Forbes where they were like, you know, people are looking, working on their side businesses and they're having sex at home and they're doing all these other things and they're not God, doing work. Sounds awesome. There's so many people. <laughs> It's like, what? who cares what they're doing? Are they getting their work done? Are they getting yeah. their work done? Like, like what, what's the point here? What, what are we trying to do, right? So we have, to, so there's going to be a whole propaganda machine of corporate shaming into getting staff and being like, labor's lazy. Wait, I'm, I'm sorry. Wait, are they essential or lazy? I, I'm confused because you just said they were essential for over a year and now they're lazy. So like, we have to be, so, so that train is going to be running. Right. And it's going to be really up to employees really to ask themselves, do I want to be be treated this way? And the more that the more that you see um, examples of like Naomi Osaka, mm -hmm. like Naomi Osaka represents like the Gen Z, you know, movement that is actually pushing this movement. She walks away from three to five million dollars of endorsements for the French Open, just because she's like, I'm gonna focus on my mental health. And they're like, but we're gonna give you more money. She's like, I don't need the money. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put my mental health over your profits and they're even like, my own profits. What? Oh my goodness, right? There's so like the more, more that, than that money? employees are doing that, like at one Burger King, for example, all the employees left. Air condition wasn't working. They just all left. They were like, we just quit. The more you're seeing that, the more it will force companies to actually adapt the more that we push. But if you're not willing to push in that way, then they're going to just try to get us back to normal as quickly as possible. So I don't know which way it's going to go. I'm leaning towards it's going to go, employees are going to be driving it, but we'll see. We'll see. All right. Well, let's take the, the to wrap up this episode, let's play a little. And here's how I want to play. I want you to paint the picture for me assuming that you could completely rewrite all of the rules you can like as if you were painting with a paintbrush on the canvas of what the future of work looks like i want you to paint the picture for me of what jeff harry's better future of work looks like how do companies run how are people compensated how are people onboarded like the the best you can do to kind of shift what the culture currently looks like what do organizations value what organizations think about what is the primary objective how do stock markets work anything you want to touch on Ooh. paint for me the picture Oof, this is a lot it's a, you don't have to address all of those i'm just yeah, throwing yeah, yeah, out yeah. like variables that you can play with but 
you believe that play is an essential component of work based on having uh, a psychologically safe work environment where people yeah. are free to innovate and work in ways that best suit them, where they're treated with respect to live their lives and do their work the way that they want and find purpose in it in a company that cares about them. That's a, a high level summary of it. Yeah. What does so work look like like that? Yeah. So, so play is about choice, right? You can play or not play. So the first thing that probably would have to exist is universal health care, which meant that like it wasn't tied to your employer, yep. which then allows you to leave from job to job because you're not stuck at that job because of health care. Right. Yep. I, there's options where a four day work week is normal, where yep. if a, it's not about how many hours you work, we're not measuring it by how many hours, but the quality of the work that you're actually doing. Uh, you have businesses where um, they represent stuff similar to Zappos in that way where employees, if you focus, your priorities are in your employees, everything else gets taken care of. Profits get taken care of, customers get taken care of because you care about your employees first, where you're actually giving just more money, not all of it, but more money that's going into employees than is actually going into stocks and investors, right? Like the, it doesn't go investors first, then employees. Like that's not the, the setup. And that they don't do, what is it? The, the JP Morgan approach There's a Morganism approach that was invented in the forties where they would do massive amounts of layoffs just to get corporate earnings. That is something that's antiquated and it's done with that. You're not doing stuff from time to time, just massive layoffs, you know, and that, and that, and that toxicity in, in the workplace, not that it's eradicated for, you know, everywhere. Right. But that it's not celebrated that you're not celebrating the Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk's and, you know, the Richard Branson's that are like spending money going to space and don't care about their staff that are just not putting stuff. So like, that's not celebrated, but we're actually celebrating the Tony Shays, the Dan Prices, these organizations that actually put equity and emotional intelligence and empathy before they put in like destroying the competition. It's not even about destroy. Like I would love, you know, a, a corporate culture where you're not like there's enough for everybody right that there's more than enough we we operate on such a scarcity mindset that there's not enough money in the world that's just the bs man that's just there's so much money offshore you can't even imagine it's like seven to eleven trillion dollars all of that should be taxed by the way but like there's so much wealth it's just so much inequity and if we're able to move that around, you're going to see like a higher middle class, which actually will make America stronger. You're going to see, you know, people that actually want to stay at their jobs for a longer period of time. Why are not people leaving every two years? Because they don't like their job, because they hate it. It's not just they're growing. So you're going to see people staying at the jobs for longer. You're going to see people, um, leaders being celebrated that actually care about empathy and emotional intelligence. And you're going to also see a massive amount of diversity. And we're not just talking about like photo diversity just to, you know, check off marks, but actual representation of like people giving up power. We've talked about this before, like this idea that we just don't want you know, people of color being represented, but we want actually the values that, that, that people of color don't feel like they have to code switch 
as much at work. That code switching is even something that people understand at work, right? Like these are the types of discussions that we're having and that we're, that people are able to have, you know, open dialogue with their leader without thinking that they might get fired. Like that is the corporate world that I would love to see. But that's a lot of work. It is, it is. But I, 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 so I align with basically all of that. And I think one of the things that um, that I think really kicked it off in, in all of that was when you said universal healthcare, and I mm-hmm. and I would add universal basic income because yes, UBI, I think, yes, I think UBI. If, if we were to have those two things, where essentially we yes. eliminated the fear of like I'm not going to have a place to live and be able to feed myself or yep. make a clean drink, if you eliminate that, you basically eliminate all of the negotiating power. Yep. For um for basically exploiting workers or creating conditions that they don't want to exist in. Cause they can yep. just say, look, I can still feed myself and exist. And like, I think that that's two of the biggest things. If I'm looking at like everything you just listed off, I'm hundred percent behind that. The other thing that I would add in there is that I would like to see some sort of, um, I don't know how to put it, but like almost like a corporate morality that like yeah. decisions need to consider um, have you had, there's a book, um, called donut economics, um, that talks about essentially a new economic model where instead of like supply and demand and infinite up and to the right, it's this idea of kind of staying in balance with the planet. Right. So you have, oh, to, consider, yes. you have to consider like the climate, you have to consider yes. like, you know, um, people who fall out of the workforce, you have to consider also people who choose to stay at home and do yes. unpaid care. You have to, yes. so there's all of these different areas of life that are being unconsidered. So if, if there was some sort of a way to also add that into the picture, I think that that would, these are all, these are all big things that we're playing in. Right. And, now. and also, and, and I forgot to mention this, but also addressing like male patriarchy, right. Yeah. In the workplace, like white supremacist, male patriarchy. And yeah. specifically why I say that is because they did a study with universal basic income, I think like 60 years ago in like a certain city. And what happened was many women left their husbands. So they stopped it because it was like, because then they, because they were only there because that was a financial like limitation. So like, these are some of the things, this is why I'm all about universal basic income. Again, you give people choices to be at a place and you're not just forcing them to be there. My nephew's at Amazon's warehouse because there's no other jobs. You know, that's the main job that he can get that pays a certain wage, but then he has to go through, like, I would love a world where that would not be tolerated, where that level of treatment of employees would, would be, would be just, would be, it would just be looked on as disgusting instead of normal. Right. And And as if we're celebrating Amazon coming into our cities now. Yeah. And you have to provide other apps because I'm thinking of like the, the kind of the small town where Walmart, where Walmart mm-hmm. comes in and puts out the you know smaller businesses. If you have the internet and a universal basic income and universal yep. health care, you have the ability to decide that you want to do something else, work online, go to Code yep. Academy and like, you know, become a developer or like sell your wares on Etsy or whatever it is. Like the internet connects us and the ability to do those sorts of things. So I'm a hundred percent behind that. And this is how fragile the corporate world is right now. 
$600 a week, sometimes $300 a week is destroying is destroying the fabric of these corporations. Yeah. The point that they had to demand states to be like, you got to get rid of this unemployment because this 300 to $600 is just, is making my staff not come. That little money, that little money is, is preventing. What are you doing? What are you doing at your company that this can be what destroys the whole house of cards? You really have to start looking at like, why are you not paying your staff more? And we're not even talking about a livable wage of 50 $15 an hour because that's actually not even realistic. Yeah, I heard it was it's like more 20. like $22 an hour. Yeah. Like that's what we're talking about. Awesome, man. Oh my God. I could talk with you about, play- I have like literally still like a page and a half of notes of stuff to talk about with you. So I think we're, we're going to have to talk more about play at some point, but uh, let's wrap up this episode. I'll have to have you back for sure. Uh, I want to take this point in the show, tell people where they can go and be social with you, where they can learn about you, where they can hire you to yes. come and help create a psychologically safe work environment and install more play. Tell people all about, promote yourself. Sure. So if you want to find my ridiculous videos, my handles, Jeff Harry plays J E F F H A R R Y P L A Y S. I'm on TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, medium, YouTube, Twitter, all on that handle. Pause um, right there. Then- I just have to, my endorsement right here. I, I want to underscore how, good of an idea. I think it is that you follow the advice of following Jeff Harry online. Uh, it is so well worth it. You are. And I am like not even blowing smoke here. You're the most unique person I follow across any of my social media. Like nobody's doing what you do. And I so thoroughly appreciate what you're bringing to like a professional world. I really legitimately do. And oh you, man, I appreciate that you so much. You really do actually make me laugh out loud. This, I appreciate it so much because seriously, sometimes I make video. Well, you gotta remember, I made these videos during the pandemic. This is, I had not made a video, like a real video until, until the pandemic. I had told myself I didn't have time to make videos. And then I called myself on my own BS. And now I've made like 350 videos, but those videos are for me. I'm just trying to, I was just trying to get through the pandemic. That was the only way I could get through it is just by playing. I start my day with a TikTok video just to get through the day. So, so now when you tell me this, that feels so good because I'm like, most of the time I'm like, no one's watching any of this stuff. Yeah. It could feel like you're shouting into the void. I want you to know right here, live on the show, you are not shouting into the void. I appreciate what you do. And I think everyone listening to shareable, if you've been a listener for any amount of time, whether it's this episode is your first, or you've been here since episode one, please go follow Jeff Harry on all of his social media. Yes, that's all. And then, and then yes, if you want to work with me, go to rediscoveryourplay.com. And right there, there's a let's play button. Click on that. I have a bunch of play experiments you can try out at your company to start solving those problems and then hop on a call with me and we can figure out how we can bring more play and psychological safety to the workplace, man, because we need it right now. My dad told me when I was a kid, find something you love to do and you'll never work a day in your life. He didn't invent it. I think it was Confucius, but... um, it, it always resonated with me and I always tried to chase passion and find things I love to do. And I still to this day do it. And I appreciate anyone who is out there uh, going beyond just to find your passion, but really talking about the benefits of being playful, of uh, having choice at work, creating environments where people don't hate their lives. Because I think the, the work meme, that whole idea that you're supposed to hate what you do and just get through it, we're better than that. We can do mm-hmm. more than that. And I appreciate that you're out there uh, promoting that message and making it accessible. It's smart 
And at the same time, it's very entertaining and, uh, and approachable. So I appreciate what you're doing. Um, I think this episode has been a blast and a half. I would talk to you anytime. I'm definitely going to have you back, but for this episode, I would say it's the sort of thing you want to tell your friends about, and you want to tell everyone about the idea of play at work, which means you should share this episode, which I guess would make this episode shareable. Wait, don't leave. If you've never listened to my fancy outro, do it just once for me, please. Okay. If you enjoy shareable and you find it valuable, there's a few ways that you can support the show. One, you can share it on social media, which I strongly encourage. I mean, it's literally the name of the show, Shareable. Two, you can review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Overcast user, as many of my listeners are, make sure to click that star button on the episodes that you like. The third way that you can support the show is by blogging about it or discussing it on your own podcast or even by making a YouTube video where you talk about one of the episodes. And then the final way that you can support the show is by supporting it directly on Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. Now, before I let you go, I want to tell you about one other thing. You see, Shareable is just one of many projects that I'm working on at any given time. I've got another podcast called Rogue. I do a live streaming show every week called The Heroic Council. I've got a blog where I release a blog post twice a week. And if you're looking to keep up with all sorts of different content that can help you grow and become a superhero in life, I want you to check out jeffgibber.me. That's where I list all of my current projects and projects that are coming up in the future, including my forthcoming book, The Lovable Leader. It would mean a lot to me if you could go and check out some of the other things I've worked on because I put just as much of my heart into those projects as I do into Shareable. Thank you so much for being a listener. Thank you for being a supporter. And I hope to see you here on the next episode of Shareable.